I'm really into this idea that there was a time where everything was joined together by string, basically, and that wood and rope got people around the entire world. I have a fascination with the sea. They say a contented man looks at a fire and a restless man looks at the sea, and I feel a drawing towards the sea. I can't help myself, I always have. I was always the last one to come out of the swimming at the beach. Come on, we're going home. No, no, don't go. It's beautiful, it's like another city underwater. There's lots of hills, lots of like canyons. Yeah, we dive through them canyons and stuff like that. Do you? Wow. Are you scared of sharks? On the Wales Road. They found a Neanderthal skull in the North Sea, shallow sea that was land. Just a bone left, shielded once in its skim of skin, like the soft lives running their course above on the Wales Road. He's his own message in a bottle, delivered by sea, as the fire takes messages to the questionable gods. can sometimes be lost for words when seeking to describe the sea and what's contained within it. This is one of several things discovered when two duffel bags were carried north by ship up east and west coasts of Australia. From Hobart and Perth, the duffel bags ended their journey in the Torres Straits. At each port along the way, the bags gathered poetry, sea things, Schoolchildren and ship workers, poetic dreamers and those who dream of being poets, all placed scraps of paper, fragments of cloth, poems in bottles and written on sea charts into the bags. And at the end they were bulky and smelled of salt. Australian naval workboat, Grampus, ship's log, 1300 hours, October 1, 2009. Departed Waterman's Dock Hobart for Huon Pier with first cargo of poems. Duffel bag was handed to the boat coxswain by Graham Miles, poet of Hobart. Bon voyage, A.J. Vine, Commander, R.A.M. We join one of the duffel bags near the end of its journey in Cairns. From here, the cargo ship, the Trinity Bay MV, is to carry the bag between reef and coastline to arrive at last on Thursday Island. In Cairns, the sea is a soft old blanket reaching all the way to powder grey skies. Clouds drift in and out of the inlet as the tide does, revealing then disguising the hills across the water. Rows of boats are tied like restless ponies to the marina 
and daily the ships head past and out and north to supply entirely remote communities with all they need. The Project Sea Things is a poetic history of the sea as um, Australians feel about it. So Sea Things is a project that's collected poems from around the country, up the east and the west coast, by poets that I've selected, individual poets, but also by members of the sea community, which means those dwellers and denizens on shore, on the sand, in the cities, plus other poems written by people on board ships, those who are journeying as passengers, those who are sea captains, retired or, or still working. Why did you choose the sea for this project? What is it about the sea that is so poetic? I suppose that question was the reason I chose the project. Why is it that so many poems are written in response to it or about it? Why does the human eye travel towards it in a similar way it does to raging flames? It's almost inexplicable. I suppose I was also interested to see how people of different ages and different locations respond to the sea. There's a great mythology about it being this beautiful, calming, hypnotic presence, but at the same time, certainly the Australian sea and the the coast has a history of much terror associated with it, drownings, boat accidents. I think that what the sea does and the things associated with the sea is that they insinuate themselves on the human imagination. I don't think we have in Australia, or indeed any other literature that I can think of, a tradition, but I do think what we have is what I'd call a motif or even a frequency. We find ourselves attuning ourselves to it. And if I think about what the actual attraction is, I think partly it's just a simply straight, sensuous, physical attraction. That, But as we contemplate it and the sea beckons us to contemplate it because we sit on the sand and watch it. I think there are four ways in which the sea fascinates us. The first thing is that it's it's both ever-changing and it's always the same. So it's embracing that contradiction. The second thing that we start to think about is that it is obviously uh, a distinction between surface and depth. When we look at the surface, there's this constant shifting of light, constant play of waters. And as soon as we look underneath it, we see that it is the home of outlandish things, uh, outlandish vegetation, outlandish fish. It's very other, isn't it? So, it, so and we, have, we do love something that's exotic and, and different. Well, m- more than that, it is the way in which... Uh, it becomes a model for our conscious lives, which are a swim of these impressions and thoughts and other things, and our subconscious life, where the conscious gets transformed into outlandish imagery that is strange to us. The third thing I'd say about it is that it is quite obviously a tract of the Earth's surface which is never settled. So it's the interval between places that are settled. Uh, It is the interval between the place where we are, which is familiar to us, and that which is over the sea's horizon, which is uh, unfamiliar to us. And so people who travel over the horizon, they bring back the exotic. They bring back the unfamiliar. And the fourth quality I'd pick about it is that 
it requires from us if the most sterling qualities. It requires nerve, it requires patience, it requires skill, and yet it repays all those qualities with complete indifference. That someone entirely unworthy will survive through good fortune on the oceans and another person entirely worthy will be killed or drowned by it through bad luck. So those four qualities seem to me to draw us to the sea as a metaphysical consideration beyond the physical attraction of it. MV Victorian Reliance VHHE, ship's log, October 5, 2009. Duffel bag taken aboard Victoria Reliance, portside to McGraw Wharf, Burnie Harbour. Vessel departed Burnie Harbour, 1700 hours, bound for Port Melbourne. Commenced open passage, 2100 hours. Altered 10 degrees to avoid drill Cantan 5, drilling on ship's track. Robert Bailey, master. The journey of the duffel bags is not only about poems on paper, it's also about the poetics of the sea, from moments of meditation on the sea as a metaphor to plain old hard grind with its back-breaking bodily destruction. On the journey, all sorts of people are met. Some write poetry on paper and others just live it. All are tied to the sea. Uh, my name's Kelly Osmond and I uh, work at sea. I'm a seafarer. I'm just finishing officer's training. I started out as a fisherman in the Gulf of Carpentaria and now I work, I guess, on a merchant navy ship, which is sort of coastal trader. And I really enjoy it. We always lived by the sea when I was little. All our holidays were beach holidays. And from when I was probably 11, 12, was sort of hung out with some slightly older guys that had fishing licences in the Hauraki Gulf and we used to set nets and smoke fish, sell fish. And I, I used to really enjoy it and for a while I thought that I wanted to be a fisherman and they were really quite disparaging about that, I guess, that girls couldn't be fishermen. So I forgot all about it and sort of wandered off into my life without even thinking about it. And then when I was in my 30s I was in Cairns and at that stage I'd been working as an artist and Cairns was definitely not somewhere where you could really practice art, but I was really quite passionate about going back to sea. And the only place I could find somewhere that I didn't have to cook was up in the Gulf of Carpentaria on a barrow boat. And I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And then I What was it that you loved about it? What did I love about it? The Gulf at that stage, you'd go for a month, six weeks without seeing anybody else. Um, you, you work out of your dinghies and you need to attend your nets. Over winter it gets up to six hours, in summer it's, it's a lot less. So it's 24 hours a day, so you know you're like driving up rivers in the middle of the night with just a spotlight maybe, trying to find nets. It was really exciting. Like, I think that's what I really liked about fishing is it's this really intimate knowledge of the world. It's not like going somewhere where there's paths and grooves worn in the ground, but all that stuff is going on there. And when you become more involved with it and more knowledgeable of it, you can see that. And I really find that really interesting and very beautiful. So what then led you from fishing to... Bigger ships. If you have a licence, you have about 1,200 metres of net out the front or 600 metres in the river. 
to set and rob those nets is that you drive up to a tree, you tie one into a tree, you back your dinghy out, put the net in, drop your anchor and drive off, keep doing that until you've set all your nets. When you come back to rob them, which is getting the fish out of them, you'll, you drive up to the net, you lift it out of the water, you pull yourself down to the bottom of the net and then you pull your dinghy along that, pulling out any fish that you've got. You do that four times a day, that's physically pulling yourself over, you know, what, 2,400 metres of net. I was doing that with kids in the dinghy and dogs, and it's really hard work. Then you've got the bit where you've actually got to get the fish out. Basically, you've got this big hook thing that you pull the fish out of the nets with, which is pulls all your, your back in, into one of your shoulders, whichever hand you are. I mean, like, when I finished fishing, I looked like uh, a rugby player. I was absolutely massive across the shoulders. You don't do very much leg exercise. So everything sort of comes into your arms and your hands and you get really bad sort of RSI carpal tunnel stuff as well. Like I knew people that couldn't pick up a glass without breaking it because they didn't have that much control over their hands anymore. And so I decided that I would get into commercial shipping. The ship roars through the night. Its path is straight and fierce. Lying on a little wooden bed in a tiny cabin next to the engine room, it feels unstoppable, a grinding force. Massive shudders roll through it, rattling our doors. All is urgent and steadfast and furious. Up on deck, it's something else. The tropical wind blows hard hot and humid. Outside it's so black, for a while you have to feel your way along an edgeless, restless platform of steel. Then eyes adjust, fog of cloud clears, soft stars shine through, and the steel folds into solid shape. All the while, the noise washes over and around. We cannot swim in the water, but we're encased and suspended in sound. Like sport, folktales and magic, the sea is not decimal. Its measures are feet and inches, the cubits of Noah's Ark, or Fathom's arm spans cartwheeling down. And the king waves come in threes. It has always been bright with gods and dark with gods, their names piled up in waves. You ride it like horseback, forgetting what stillness means, and return to land as the moment after an earthquake. When poems venture into it, they float out words, and the words sink, so they float out more after the ones missing or found drifting and abandoned. It takes in our bodies like news from above. My name's Marty, I'm the first officer on board the Trinity Bay. I'm responsible for the loading of the vessel and making sure that we're stable, as well as you know, sharing the watchkeeping with the master and the, uh, the second mate also, yeah. So you're actually using some old-fashioned uh, instruments here. You've got uh, a compass, I don't believe it, a nice-looking brass compass. 
Yeah, no, these are still common common instruments. We don't very often pull out the sextant anymore. We've got did it on GPS and uh, radars, etc., for taking ranges and bearings and fixing from those. What's Even this? with our electronic plotter here, we still uh, will fix onto a paper chart regularly and then we have a record of the voyage. The sea just looks completely empty, but if you look at the map, we're winding our way between a lot of reef action. Yes, that's right. When you look around in the water, there's not much to see, but you, you may pick out discoloration in the water, or out here you can see waves breaking out of starboard there. That's indicating the reef out there. What was that about? Uh, that's our waypoint alarm telling me it's time to turn. So do you ever get bored? No, it's always look out the sea. Yeah. Your mind gets lost out the sea, you look out there, you get you can be anywhere. But look at it, it's beautiful, you just you get lost in it. Time slips by. Working up here is completely different. Like where I am, I'm one of the most isolated workers in Australia. Where do you work? In Lockhart River, I'm on the barge. So like for four and a half days of the week I'm completely by myself. The other two two and a half days I've got a deckhand, but I'm 800 kilometres north of Cairns, you know. <laughs> We're the last population on the eastern seaboard and, and I'm the last contact with a lot of people. So like it's good because I'm like I'm a vital link with the community at Lockhart. Without me there, they don't get fed or watered, they don't get their fuel for the aeroplanes or how does that make you feel? It's good satisfying actually. You know, you're doing the part. It's I like that, you know. You got a you got a, a lot of responsibility there and you know, they look, look the way I travel to work <laughs> and I sit back and cruise on the promenade deck, you know. <laughs> and there's a lot of history up here. So like when we go past the Flinders group, there's so much history, like they have all the Aboriginal paintings there. Like there's caves there, there's even a picture of a Spanish soldier in full Spanish uniform, which predates Cook. You know, there's history there that we a lot of people don't even know about. Yeah, it's uh, we passed this morning Cape Melville as we come around with all the rocks on the on the peak this morning. Right. You saw, that was the site of Australia's worst maritime disaster back in the turn of the century. What big tidal wave went through here, earthquake and a big tidal wave tsunami. Look, look at all those rocks on top of that mountain. And now there's over 400 killed, like all the pearlers, all the boats are there. Plus they, like, they reckon there's millions of dollars worth of pearls in those rocks, but there's millions of tiger snakes there too, so if you gave enough, you know. <laughs> they still, yeah, they're still treasure to be found. Yeah. <laughs> Away <laughs> haul away ho we'll haul away together away haul away and we'll haul away Joe First I had a Spanish girl but she grew fat and lazy away haul away and we'll haul away Joe now I've got a Brooklyn girl, her family drives me crazy. Away, haul away, and we'll haul away, Joe. Away, haul away, haul we'll I'm from Test Island, born and bred here. Lived here for nearly 30 years. And what do you do here? Uh, I just do, when it's crayfish season, we go out and do crayfishing. Uh, yeah, we spend, like, if you're on the boat, we'll be out for about 10 days. Or maybe more. If we don't catch enough crayfish, we can stay out there for about two weeks or something or more. Is it really hard work? Oh yeah, it's hard work. You got to dive. You got to well, it's 20 meters of water. We dive in. We use them um, air compressor. You know them hooker. 
how long do you spend underwater? Well, if it's 20 meters of water, we only can spend about 20 minutes, half an hour. But we have to come back up, or else we get the bends if it's from being down that deep. Have you had the bends? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Uh, safe day work. MT Alexander Spirit, ship's log, October 16, 2009, Brisbane. Poetry bag received whilst alongside wharf loading 21,000 tonnes refined petroleum products for Townsville and Cairns. Good bay transit. Vessel moving easily to smooth seas and low swell. Part cloudy, fine and clear. Captain Alan Champkin. How to tie a knot. Of all hitches, however, the one which any man or boy can least afford not to know is the clove hitch. Make two bites or loops. Hold them between the thumbs and forefingers. Slide the left loop over the right loop. Then slip the double loop thus formed over anything that will represent a post and draw tight by the end. Practice this until your fingers can do it swiftly and of themselves, just as your tongue can say the alphabet. For a clove hitch, when it is used, needs to be made quickly and handsomely. The Book of Athletics and Out-of-Door Sports by Norman W. Bingham, Jr., 1885. I'm really into this idea that there was a time where everything was joined together by string, basically, and that wood and rope got people around the entire world. It sounds crazy. I'm a complete not-nerd. But when you look at at what people have done, and there's the whole thing of nets and knots, sailing ships, there's so much craft involved. And then, you know, being able to move really heavy weights around with a few knots, I mean, that's a, that's a real skill. Being able to construct enough knots together that you can actually catch food. The bit where you can then use all those knots in combination to make a 70-foot vessel sail to the other side of the world. It's the splicing uh, that I love, the way in which you unstrand a rope and then you you tuck its strands back into the rope itself in order to create a loop or to join two ropes together or to make a neat end to a, a rope rather than have it fray. And it's the way that they plait in and out of their own strands. You're probably aware how when you make a rope you twist the yarn in one direction when you've got your yarn twisted into a strand, you twist the strand in the other direction and you then twist the rope in that counter direction to that. So you've got three, three counter pressures that hold the rope together and stop it from uh, unravelling. The degree to which one tucks and folds and uh, turns something which can unravel into something which will hold together is a part of the mental process in trying to make a body of writing not only vivid but durable. And so it's the physical, sensual business of doing the job uh, marries with a verbal application to it in uh, writing poetry. This is a town of weathered stones. They rim the park, each inscribed with the end of someone's life. A master mariner a drowned man. The saddest allowed with the deaths of children. 
Sea defaces the stones in its slow riot, and ocean and dry land are just a matter of degree as the waves of cloud break over the mountain. The stones' names come from Perthshire and Dumfries, Cork and Leipzig. They're left like sea fossils stranded on mountains. Hi, I'm Kerry Ashwin and I live in a boat in Townsville at the marina, have done for four years. That's my old sailing hat, so that can go in the duffel bag. <laughs> I mean, it's old and it's all um, falling apart because of the sea, so that's why I thought, you know, it's appropriate. So that can go in the duffel bag. <laughs> that is just so beautiful. It's a, a white, well, it was once white and now it's a bit torn and sort of grey looking and it's... A bit mouldy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got your poem written in blue capital letters all around. Yes. So the poem I'm going to read is called Drowning. And I, I have a fascination with the sea. It, it has a potency to it that, to a landlubber, I suppose, you just can't understand. Mm. It's like you want to, when you're on a rowboat, you want to trail your fingers in the water. And when you're all thirsty, that first sip on your lips to get rid of the salt... On the boat, looking at the water as we're going by, I sometimes feel that I want to jump in and just be in it. It's that feeling when you're on top of a um, hill or a cliff and you want to jump over. I feel I want to be surrounded by it. So uh, drowning, it's not a morbid fascination, but it is a fascination. And so that's why I wrote this poem, Drowning. Like a friend, she embraces me, cradling me, coaxing me on. Her memories envelop me, triumphs and sorrows, victories and vanquished, sailors and sirens. I could struggle, I could fight, but she plays a lullaby and I want to succumb. Her body surrounds me, I want to return to her womb. Then... I must breathe, and she becomes my enemy, a lover spurned, a mother cast aside, as I hold on to life and live. MT Alexander Spirit, ship's log, October 22, 2009. Pilotage and berthing, Townsville. 0100, tug fast forward. 0220, all fast forward and aft. 0330, hoses connected, discharge 9,600 tonnes refined products. 2130, discharge complete, sailed and full away at 2342, destination Cairns. Captain Alan Champkin. Everything on a boat happens slowly, whether you're docking or whether you're just eating or sitting back with sundowners after five. Nothing is fast or furious so uh, my poetry takes on that slow easy rhythm there's just that gentle rocking of uh, um, to and fro that lulls you and I think it just gets under your skin and so my poetry takes on that sort of like just breathe and relax there's a, a book by a guy who went round the world, Montissier his name was, and he didn't want to get 
off the journey after a while. He loved being by himself. He loved being on the sea. And in his book, he turns, well, it's almost quite mad because he, he just doesn't want to sully that experience with being with people or actually going on land. And land feels dirty after a while because you've been at sea and there's no flies at sea, there's no ants. In a way, I feel like Montissier that I never want to get off. What makes you decide to just step off land in that permanent way? Well, it's funny you should say step off land because that's what I always used to say to my kids, that when we're jumping in the sky on a trampoline or something like that, uh, we're actually stepping off the continent of Australia. And every time I step off the dock onto my boat, I think I'm an entity of myself not attached to anything and especially in your really deep sea and you know by the echo sounder that on your boat that there's nothing below you for thousands and you just want to get in and be a little speck and it's almost like being a star in the cosmos or something Hobart edges the stream of ocean looks out to where water hardens into land and electric echoes skip over it. Down there, earth and sky are married again, reconciled as they might be on worlds where no tail ever tripped through ocean, no gill breathed. Up here, where the wind is whining through the rigging, rust dissolves anchors and hulls, pulls apart the cracks in things. You describe more than once in your writing, and you're writing about your writing, the numinous experience you feel whenever you step onto a boat or a ship. Can you explain this feeling? No, I can't entirely, um, in the same way as a piece of music might suddenly attract me and uh, for mysterious reasons. I think it's to do with letting go of something which is stable and utterly reliable and utterly taken for granted to be on something that is moving underneath you uh, in, a, in a way that is creaturely. There's a frisson in that and there's a risk in that. One is, one is immediately in a different dimension of physical existence. That movement from something rather too banally stable and to be taken for granted to something that has that frisson of risk uh, and movement and creatureliness. I, I tend to talk about numinosity because I don't want to talk about some sort of personal idea of, of, of divinity or anything like that. I think for many poets, we do tend to, to stumble onto things which are uh, to do with religion, even if we're not particularly religious ourselves. What I really am trying to get at is just this, this sense of, of something certainly greater than, than us, but it's really just existence itself and, and the suchness of things, sort of strangeness that there is anything is really what I'm sort of endlessly struck by, the fact that there is something rather than nothing. I don't feel a great need to, to find some sort of overarching explanation for that, but I do feel the need to, to wonder at it, and that, that I suppose, is what, what I, I get at when I think about, about numinosity. I, I suppose the sea is one of the great reminders of, of that, that no matter how tangled up in our own, our own minds, our own little sort of senses of self we become, that the sea still has that power to remind um, simply because of its, its power, its impersonality, its fluidity. 
Um, because it is all of those things, it, uh, it tends to remind us of it, which is also why it's such a problem poetically, because you tend to, to move towards big, expansive things, and those can easily become diffuse or um, just become nebulous and lose their, lose their bite. So I'm Dave Jordan. I'm a very keen yachtsman, uh, having started sailing as a, as a kid, and it was only natural then to join the Navy, uh, where I spent 25 wonderful years, and uh, yeah, had the privilege, I guess, to command two warships. One was a frigate, and the other was a patrol boat, uh, where we spent uh, considerable time up patrolling Australia's northern waters. Tell me what it's like in terms of the relationship to the water itself. I imagine with the Navy, you know, you're almost miles away from it in some senses, psychologically and physically. Yeah, very much. The traditional naval activity can be quite removed from the sea elements. I mean, the advance of technology itself, uh, the deep operations rooms, the dark dungeons where the war fighting is conducted, the almost sort of non-human distancing that, that... the construction of ships themselves can provide um, it can take you away a bit from from the elements and uh, sailing certainly doesn't do that uh, you know the means of propulsion itself being the wind uh, invites a close relationship with the elements have you had any dangerous situations at sea and how has the sea impacted on the situation the first consideration is that the sea is an unforgiving environment. I mean, it needs all the respect that you can provide, and it is in itself dangerous. So I'd, I'd use an example of one where we supported the Australian Federal Police in a, a drug raid along the coast, uh, providing uh, support from a seaward sense. Um, that in itself, rather than perhaps the potential for the drug traffickers to combat us, it was more a concern about providing the right level of support to the, to the police operatives and making sure the ship was safe so close to shore at night with no lights. I mean, if, if I can just take the first emotional sense was, I mean, not that we'd done anything wrong or that we should feel uncomfortable, but having a whole heap of policemen on board is always a little unnerving, I guess. But, but in terms of the, the physical dangers, I mean, you're getting as close into the coast as you can. There's not much water under the keel. You're not radiating your radar, so you haven't got a good sense of accurate position at night. Uh, there's a need to preserve a good sort of um, light discipline, uh, so not to reveal our position. Uh, we need to be quiet. Quite often you turn off the engines so that we don't make too much noise. Uh, always very tense and you can only keep that up for X number of hours. Um, if you so, had no engine, how did you propel yourselves? You, know, you, you calculate and put yourself in a position to use the tide and current of course and then when that starts to work against you, you anchor for a while um, and then of course when, when all that runs out you can then use the engines to manoeuvre. And were you successful? That was a very successful activity. I think at the time it was sort of in the top ten of, of drug halls in Australia, which was you know, quite pleasing. Chief Officer's Logbook. Vessel, Trinity Bay. Voyage from Cairns to Horn Island. Departing Friday the 13th. Arriving Horn Island Sunday the 15th. Saturday the 14th of the 11th at 0600 hours. Steering 321 gyro to make good 318 true. Winds from the southeast at 30 knots 
Ship speed 12.9 knots. You're with 360 on ABC Radio National and we're following the path of two bags of poetry as they find their way by ship up the coast towards the very tip of Australia. We arrive in the night, wake in the dark to absolute silence. Thursday Island at last. The duffel bags are fat with poems and soon will be opened, and all around, the dangers of the sea have just gotten closer. Crocs are chomping, biting and tearing as the dead creatures float to shore. Turtles, dugongs, cats and dogs, also people too. Munch, munch, chew, chew. Okay, well, it's about 6.45 in the morning and I am risking life and limb sitting on, on a rocky pier looking out over, well, I'm not sure which island that is. It might be Horn Island, over this uh, calm and tranquil sea, hoping that the shallows my feet are resting in are shallow enough that I might see a croc if he's approaching. Here's the croc warning with picture of a good fat croc with his mouth open so you'll know when he's about to bite. So the crocs are older than dinosaurs, little different from their prehistoric ancestors that stalked the earth before the dinosaur age. Males can grow to seven metres but are most are less than five, which is uh, not reassuring, weighing between two to four hundred kilos. And uh, being wise, croc wise in croc country, don't clean off fish or discard fish scraps near the water's edge. Well, that goes on all the time. Don't dangle your arms or legs over the side of the boat. If you fall out, get back in as fast as possible. Never swim at night. Okay. Done. What's it like underwater? It's beautiful. It's like another city underwater. There's lots of hills, lots of canyons. Yeah, we dive through them canyons and stuff like that. Do you? Yeah. Wow. Are you scared of sharks? Oh, yeah, we see them around. Yeah? But just got to be cautious of them. Always careful. Not, don't panic too much when you see one. So if you thrash around, they're more yeah. interested in yeah. you, is that right? Yeah. What makes a shark attack you? Oh, it's just by... Well, they don't attack you. Well, you know, us human beings, we have the sense of touch. Like, we use our hands to touch things. But as a, for a shark, they don't have any hands. So they have to use their mouth to feel what they don't like, the taste of human blood, I think. Yeah. Like they'll swim up to you, probably rub against you, and then that's when you got to go close to a rock and hide. Has the shark rubbed up against you? Uh, a couple of times, yeah. How did you feel? Uh, it, was, it was scary. I had to find a big rock and hide it under a rock, lean up against the rock and wait till the shark swim away. There is something unusual or special about about a death at sea as opposed to any other sort. 
Why that would be, I don't know. I mean, I guess it is perhaps that sense of scale and of strangeness of the sea, a sense of, of dying at sea as being, in a way, becoming part of it. The special nature of those who die at sea is encapsulated by a kind of ancient Greek hero worship, which you know quite a lot about. To put us in context, could you tell me, firstly, what defines a hero? When, when we approach this idea of hero cults in, in an ancient Greek context, it's important to, to put aside what we normally think of as heroic. A heros in, uh, in ancient Greek religion is really someone who belongs to a particular class of being, which... It sounds so melodramatic to describe it as the class of the powerful dead, but it's an idea of people who were once human beings who have died and who receive a particular sort of worship. Now, that's not necessarily because they were good people. Many of them are not necessarily. Um, it, it's more a sense there's something special about this person. There's generally something strange about the way they, they die or, or vanish. There's one nice example. Um, this is to do with uh, Melicertes and, and Eucothea, who were worshipped at Corinth. The idea with these two is that they're escaping from the husband of, of Ino, who becomes Leucothea, uh, meaning the white goddess, uh, and that uh, in escaping from this uh, basically abusive husband, uh, she leaps over, leaps over a cliff holding her infant child in her arms, who's uh, called Polymon at that stage. They're both transformed by their leap into the sea and become either sort of heroes or, or on the, the borderline of being sea deities as well and get these new names of uh, Melicertes and Eucothea. And there's some sort of uh, quite secretive worship which was associated with, this, with these people as well. So there's certainly a sense of the transformative power of the sea there and, and the sense of this sea death being in, in some way special or rendering them a kind of special case among the figures who were once human. walked up the hill on Thursday Island and come to a little tiny cemetery which has views over the sea to the other islands around and um, quite a few of these graves have oceanic references in loving memory of Kimisu Maru born 11th of the 9th 31 died 19th of the 7th 78 a confident and reliable diver in the pearl and trochus fishing, wherever the sun Jesus shall reign. Treasured memory of Joe Savage Maru, born Badu Island, not sure if I've pronounced that right, died Thursday Island, 3rd of the 9th, 1984. Successful skipper in the pearling industry, contributed his services to the Torres Strait during Second World War as a skipper of cargo vessel Mulgrave. So there's a tremendous pride in maritime achievement, it seems. In fact, this is kind of cemetery hill because the graves are spread out amongst the trees stretching down the hill in little patches and groups and clusters. And here's a grave that is nothing but really a pile of rocks that is tumbling down, but placed on top of it is this beautiful, very old-looking white shell. It's quite large, and, and it's, uh, it's curved like a wave on the sea, a perfect wave. It's been placed there very carefully.
Somewhere out there is the idea of a drowned cathedral. Through holes in the stained glass swim improbable fish. The light that spirals down is already broken when it picks out the stingrays circling like church bats. At the base of the organ, the satyrs are still whole, but the trumpeting angels are noseless on pipe tops. If there could ever be a house of God, it would be this, perched on the shelf edge, where he tries to remember what was down there at the most submerged beginning. How he came to be here on the edge of things. Old man of the sea. Photocopies of the um, the poems from the school, which we had there today. Gorgeous. Yep. So these are in the the students' own handwriting, and they've got little bits of notes and things that they've made as well about what Captain Dave was telling them, and um, yeah, various ones of their their poems. Okay. So this is the larger of the two duffel bags that has made more stops along the way which is why it's fatter. There's one here with photographs, I think. A person I know missed one of our handovers and they decided to throw their poem into the sea, but not only did they do that, they found a bottle and put it in with all of their details in the hope that we may come across it in our travels or someone else will come across it and then finally be able to send it back. So I think this is it. Yeah, the poems that are in that are called Coastal Sequence, from Mark Miller. You know, we could, we'll be waiting for the rest of our lives for it. As soon as you're born, you're basically taught to sing. Your local language, as you grow up, you, you automatically learn how to sing, learn how to dance, and music is, a, is something very important for us. We don't have written history. Our history is done orally through dancing and singing, so that, that is how we keep our history intact. Everyone sings about the sea, their livelihood. So the songs and poems and all of that are based either on the sea, the land, the sky, water, anything, Na nature. To, to, to have a poem or a song written here on the island and, and you hear it down south in Australia or overseas, that is your connection back to your family, back to, back to your... You can actually picture where you're sitting at the moment, exactly from, from songs like this, because each song will really have a meaning to the exact place you are. We up here, you get up in the morning, you're glad because you get fresh air every time. And being next to the sea, well, that's my livelihood. I grew up here. Um, you put me in the city, um, I, I think I, I won't live there. It's not me. 
I can see myself in the city. The, the best thing about being out on the sea, bro, I'll tell you this, is, is you can hear silence. That's the best thing about being out there. You can hear silence. See, if you take your time out to go out on the sea, you will hear silence. And that's the best thing that will ever happen. Hi, I'm Gretchen from the ABC. How are you? Good. This is Renee. Renee, so you're pretty inspired by this project? Yes. Yeah? Do you mind if I record you? Yes. <laughs> so you just wrote two poems? Yes. Just like that? Yeah. Great. I'd love you to read them for me. The ocean is turquoise, the islands are green, the people are nice, we hear boats moaning at night, animals too. Clouds cover the water, making it look blue. Beautiful. Perfect. Can you introduce yourself for me and tell me what school you're from? Um, my name is Renee and I'm from Tagai State College. And how old are you, Renee? I'm 12. You're 12. That's wonderful. Do you write poetry much? No. No? It's the first time? Yes. Oh. How did you know how to do it? I didn't know. It's just inspiration from the island and the sea. Great. Thank you very much. Do you like this one? The wind is blowing, the sea is moving, the cars are driving around. The flowers are growing, the grass is dying, and the babies are crying out loud. Ants are crawling, too much of building, I'm still <laughs> While the woman prepares. I have to ask you about your inspiration. What's an inspiration? What makes you really want to write down these words? When I write a poem, I think about the community, because my family is coming. The beautiness of it. Because it just... Because it's just, beautiful. It just comes into our heads. It just runs through our mind and we say, oh, it's so beautiful. 